Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Inside Indy Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football, recruiting, and more for InsideIndySports.com on the Rivals Network. Spring football is almost here. This time next week, the Irish will have already been back on the field at the Irish Athletic Center, and Eric and I will be adjusting to the early mornings for ourselves. Even with a later start to spring practice than usual, it seems kind of wild that it's already here for us, given all the... uh, activity that this offseason has held but we wanted to set the scene for what will be an interesting four weeks of practices so we invited on one of our favorite guests who's certainly familiar with the irish that's former notre dame offensive lineman bob morton who's also a regional director of development for the university bob thanks for joining us tyler thanks for having me eric good to see you again bob what has it been like from your point of view sort of watching the coaching carousel take its toll on notre dame's coaching staff this offseason oh man i you know i'll tell you what like i just I, I had mentioned to you guys a little bit earlier, right? Like it, it, it's been confusing to a certain degree, right? Like we, you know, finished the year like we did, you know, last year, everything momentum wise felt like it was carrying the right direction. Um, you know, even with a big move or two, you, you, you think that if you lose anybody like an offensive coordinator um, that you would have um, a pretty easy time filling that in any other positions that are going in. You know, it sure doesn't feel great, right? Like as a former player putting myself, you know, in those cleats again, it doesn't feel great, you know, showing up to spring ball, um, not really having uh, loads of time uh, with with the coaches through, you know, winter conditioning and some of those early morning workouts. So now that spring ball is here, you've you've got some relationship building to do on the field that you would have liked to have been done over the last couple of months. So when you go into a spring practice where there's a new, for, from your standpoint, a new offensive coordinator, how, how different is it having to do maybe major install? I don't know if it's going to be major install, but there's going to be some differences versus, okay, we've got our coordinator back. We have, you know, our head coach is the same. Uh, how is spring practice different when you have installed to do? You know, I, I think that um, spring ball is perfect for for install, right? Like it, it really you you don't have the the game to get ready for like at the end of the week, and so you're really kind of learning the mental side of working together. I think it's perfect for that. I think when um, you know, when Charlie Weiss replaced uh, uh, Ty Willingham, um, he came in, we had winter workouts, and we were installing this uh, really complex offense from the get-go in spring ball. The thing that was different, though, is we had an entire winter with the coaches that had come in with Charlie, who were kicking our tails at five o'clock in the mornings, you know, multiple days a week, and we were building that rapport of how we were going to talk to one another, relate to one another, learn together. We, you know, we were seeing them in office uh, throughout the course of of the winter. So when spring ball got there, it was basically like, okay, let's see how we dance together now, right? We'd done all the relationship building, and then we just had to learn what it was going to look like on the field. Man, it, it sounds like really hard to me thinking of you're trying to learn some of the steps of that dance while you're already on the dance floor. Um, And so, yeah, I I mean, I don't think there's any players in the country that can handle it better than ours. I don't think there are any coaches that can handle it better than the ones we have, but it's an extra little curveball 
that some of these relationships are brand new and we're getting ready to start, you know, start installing plays. Bob, do you think it helps then that even though Jared Parker wasn't the offensive coordinator last season, he was at least on staff at Notre Dame last season and he can maybe help make that transition to his offense a little bit smoother, given that he knows everything that the guys knew from last season. hundred percent, hundred percent. I think that um, number one, just the fact that it's somebody who's internal, who has great relationships with the players um, and being able to continue that someone who isn't coming in saying, Hey, I don't know how things were done here previously, but this is what I'm going to do. He's, you know, coach Parker is able to come in and say, Hey guys, we know that this did work. We know that this didn't work. We're going to change things a little bit. We're going to use some of the same terminology. Like he's able to reference that and lean on that, the previous relationships and expand those relationships, I think is a really positive thing. Um, I think, you know, like also uh, internally, um, I think there was probably fewer questions, you know, of him being the coordinator than there was outside, right? Like talking to, talking to Notre Dame alumni who are not inside the conversations, who don't know how media works a lot of the times. Um, there was just a, a lot of confusion uh, over kind of what was going on behind closed doors. While I understand that the team feels some of that, they're also, from from the day Coach Parker was named OC, they've been with him day after day after day. I think the waters are probably a lot calmer in the locker room than they have been for the people outside who are looking in and trying to figure out what's happening. So one of the elements of this new offense is going to be a new offensive line coach, Joe Rudolph. Um, you know, we had a chance to talk to him last week. Pretty impressive in the press conference. If he can coach like that, he'll be mm -hmm. very impressive. Um, but one of the things he said was that he wanted continuity. He want, didn't want to change too much of what Harry was doing. Um, how how smart is that? How realistic is that, that he's going to be able to follow kind of Harry's template, uh, other than you know his own personality, his own brand of yelling and practice? Well, I think it's it's brilliant, and I think it's far easier for him to do it that way than to ask a, a dozen offensive linemen to completely and totally change how they're receiving information, right? So if he yeah. comes in, does his film study, right, learns some of the ways that that Harry um, was really communicating to them and and works on that shared terminology – He's going to see things in practice and identify things that Harry didn't. He's going to leave things alone that Harry didn't. Mm -hmm. And the difference of those two coaching styles, it's a net positive, no matter who it is. You know, like you can have a great O-line coach and then you go to another great O-line coach, but one is talking about, hey, focus on your inside hand. The other one's like, don't even think about your inside hand. Really focus on your <laughs> hand placement with your outside hand. And, and it's just when you keep hearing different things and you're, you're as an offensive lineman, it can be really cerebral when, when you're letting those neurons fire as they come, like you, you end up just breaking it down to what you know is, is best. Right. So you retain what Harry taught, you're retaining what coach Rudolph taught and you're, you're kind of developing that new rapport with the new coach. I would say he's going to come in using 
75% shared terminology that came from Coach Heastand. By the time the first snap of the fall comes, they'll be down to 60% shared terminology and 40% kind of more of himself. And over the next year, you're going to start to see really him settle into what his Irish identity is going to be. And we don't want him to be anything different than he is. He's a he's a teacher. He's a, a mental coach. He's a get-after-it guy. All things that we want to see in South Bend could not be happier with his mindset coming in to continue the legacy of the O-line at Notre Dame, not just put his stamp on it and change it. Bob, I'm curious of your viewpoint on this, given your experience as a player. Joe Rudolph walks into an offensive line that I don't think he has many questions about who his tackles are. Do you think that makes it easier for him to sort of focus on the interior offensive line because – the tackles are such a critical part and you sort of already have the answers to that, or is it, is it bigger than that where you have to get all five together, regardless of who you have the, which guys you have the answers for already? Yeah. You know, like I think when you, when you come in with the bookends like that, it, it's a, it's a unique situation, right? Um, I think it really depends on, um, you know, how he views uh, putting together offensive lines. It'd be one thing if we had like a six, four, six, five, you know, yeah, he's doing great at tackle, but maybe we move him inside to guard. We don't left tackle, and anybody in the country would be happy with these two guys standing tall on the right and left side. I do think, as a guy who's only played inside, mm-hmm. I do think you can have continuity of the tackles because they go on an island sometimes in your pass pro, and then you can build your best three inside and so long as there's not a really big misfrequency between the guards and tackles, you just need to find your best wall inside and the two outside guys, you know, can be can, can be uh, added to that um, externally. And so I think that that's what I would imagine he's going to do is obviously make those guys better, work on the contingency plan if they can't go for any play or game or stretch of the season. But also, he's got to figure out who are going to be his maulers inside, who's going to be the center that's got the voice, getting everybody in the right position, working with that quarterback, and and what kind of attitude are they going to have between those tackles? Because I think that's one of the things where, I mean, we had these great running backs last year, but there were still time I didn't feel confident on first, second, third, and short because we just didn't have that that inside mauler mentality that I think we can. Okay. okay. So I'm going to have you help us handicap the guard spots. <laughs> um, and I'll, I'll throw five options out there. You got, and, and especially there's two that I think are, are really going to be important. I think Billy Shrouth is going to be one of the starters. He's going to be a sophomore. He's athletic, smart. He's a mauler. I mean, he's exactly what you described. Then if you don't involve somebody that's a backup tackle moving over, it's really between Andrew Kristoffic and Rocco Spindler. So let's leave maybe a backup tackle moving over out of it for a second. Kristoffic is a guy that knows the plays, fifth-year guy, is going to get the assignment correct 98% of the time. Then you have Rocco Spindler, who's a much better athlete, but forgets plays. Who is going to be the easier guy to coach? Who's going to fit 
in that do you think if you're joe rudolph who who's the guy that you think that you can get to be that fifth offensive lineman the guy that is assignment correct or the guy that's the better much better athlete yeah so let's go ahead and rewind um you know 20 years right and um Charlie Weiss comes in, John Latina comes in as an offensive line coach. Um, I'd spent the previous two years, one starting at center and the other starting at uh, at left guard, right? So I played a full season at left guard. There was no need to put me back at center. Um, you know, John Sullivan was, uh, was on the team, uh, obviously um, could handle the job. Matter of fact, probably more athletic in what he was doing there than I ever had a hope of being. Um, but I understood the entirety of the offense in the moment. And I would say I had a little bit more of that experience. And while less athleticism, um, I, I just I just didn't miss, right? I just I just didn't miss. And Charlie Weiss came in and that next season tabbed me as the starting center. Uh, and we kind of had a rotation going through the games until an injury changed that. Uh, a little bit halfway through and John took the starting role back after three or four games, never looked back. I was playing guard the rest of my career. I think that when you have a new coach coming in, you have a new offense, a little bit coming in um, the lead goes to, to the person who's that cerebral player. Who's yeah. got the experience, who's got the savvy, who, you know, you know, you, you, you find what kind of run plays that they work really well at but they're going to give you the protection that you need um, to make sure that if it's, you know, third and five, you're going to be able to get the ball out. Well, um, ultimately you want to get to the guy who's got a higher ceiling, but the work for that has to be done off the field as much as on. Okay. So if, if Rocco Spindler called you up and said, Bob, how do I get to the point where I'm, I'm processing things as well as anybody else on the interior. What advice would you give him? Is it film work? Is it extra work after practice? How does he get himself to that point? Yeah, I think I think there's some muscles that that need to be worked. And I'm not saying he's not doing this. I, I, I've not worked yeah. with Rocco. I want to be very clear about that. Right. But if anybody ever asked me as an offensive lineman, like, how can I increase my the mental acuity of the game? it really is like understand your role within the larger circles, right? What are you doing compared to the rest of the offensive line and why? What are you doing compared to the rest of the offense and why? You know, we had ran an offense with Charlie where, um, you know, we would, I knew what the receivers were doing because if I'm the right guard and I know that we've got a certain, you know, check with me with the inside receiver and I see that blitz coming, I don't have to get into a hand fight with this defensive tackle. I can cut him because we're going to throw that slant to Raymond McKnight right now. Mm -hmm. And so I think like really increasing the, the study of the game beyond just the battle inside gives you the bigger picture to make sure you're always in the right spot at the right time. And if you get a better athlete in the right spot at the right time, they're going to do better than I could ever do. I just yeah. was always there. Bob, as, as we evaluate what Jared Parker's offense can be, I'm curious, what what are your hopes for what Notre Dame's offense can become? What did, what did you, what are your hopes for what maybe you didn't see last season that you hope is a bigger part of Notre Dame's offense moving forward? 
you know, I would like us to be just a little, um, a, a little more expected, right? I just want, I, I want a little less window dressing and, and just a little more like it, it's time to line up and go. I think everybody kind of felt as the season wore on that we had some unique backs in the backfield that did different things well. And yet sometimes it seemed like on third and short, we would have the back that may not specialize in third and short in the game. Right. Um, and so I just, I, I feel like, you know, you've got two backs that see the field extraordinarily well and and run physically dominant football with Diggs and Estime. You've got a gifted space back in Tyree. Like, I would like us to, to just line up and let our athletes be better than the guys across from the ball. Uh, and, um, and, I, and I think that there's plenty of gamesmanship that can go on in different things. I just felt like it felt too cute to me a little bit last year. And when I felt like we really hit our stride, I mean, for me, I'm not an old time football guy. Please just know that I'm not, <laughs> but I may have told you guys, like just line up in the I formation, put estimate at fullback. And then two weeks later, they did that. Right. Like I right. just, I just wanted to see a little bit of, we are going to create the tough guy identity for our O line we're not going to wait for it to just somehow show up when we're not calling plays for it. Well, I think Jared Parker should be listening then to this podcast if he's going to get good ideas like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, and and when you said window dressing, it reminded me because the tournament kicked off today that you guys are probably both too young to remember this. There was a great coach named Al McGuire that led Marquette to the national championship. He was on TV doing the – um doing the tournament when I was in college, but he would say too much French pastry. That was his, <laughs> his, uh, his thing. So no, no more French pastry from me here. But um, one thing I wondered, and people always ask me, don't, you know, we don't see that much of spring practice, but when we do, they'll say, well, is the offense ahead of the defense? Who Who's right. doing well there? And, and then you wonder, okay, am I really getting a clear picture of this anyways? Does the defense know all the plays at this point that you're not getting a true look of what the offense can do? How, do, how does that work out when the defense knows all your plays? Or or do you try to keep it a secret from them? Yeah, so, I mean, really, what I would say, a good offense uh, does two things. One, um, you can line up in a given formation and run both um, – a play designed to go power to the right or finesse to the left, right? So like they have to stay true to their okay. reads because if they guess wrong, the offensive coordinator is going to call the play to embarrass the defense to say, hey, yeah. give us give us a stinking look, right? Yeah. And and it causes a fight. The offense and defensive coaches yell at each other. It's great <laughs> times to be had by all, but it's literally like if the linebackers are – are firing gaps, but they're not waiting for their reads, then we're just going to throw over their heads to let them know, we know what you're doing. Let's go. Um, but the second thing is like, to a certain degree, you want to be an offense where you can like Larry Allen, like guard for the Cowboys used to point and say, Hey, it's third and one. We're running right here and we're going to get five yards, right? You're not going to stop <laughs> us. Yeah. And, and to a certain degree, like you, you want that. So I, I always enjoyed, I would say my, my fifth year, 
I think the offense was the one spring I felt like the offense with the continuity with Charlie Weiss, the people we had coming back, we just had a dominant spring, you know, that year. But spring, beginning of fall ball, like I loved playing this invincible defense because they had one read and they knew what the play was. But as the as it wore on and the speed started slowing down for us again, all of a sudden, if you can beat your defense who knows what one or two plays it is, the other teams are naturally going to be slower because they have so many other things that they're trying to learn in one week, not four years sometimes of lining up across from you. Bob, I have one last question for you, and it's a complete curveball from what we've been at talking about. Tomorrow Love. on Friday is St. Patrick's Day, and Notre Dame has been doing what it calls a it's pot of gold day, and it offers lots of kids uh, its scholarships on that day. I'm curious, what do you remember about the moment that you learned that you had a scholarship from Notre Dame? Ooh, man. So it's vivid. Like, it's not like I have to, like, think too much about it. Um, <laughs> you know, was was a, a high school kid in Texas, right? And for um, for reasons, um, you know, I had committed really early to Texas A&M. Um, at the end of my junior year, I, I knew that I didn't want – they were going through a coaching change. They I was 17 years old. I knew I wanted to redshirt, and they didn't want me to redshirt. And so the, it just wasn't a fit there. And I opened up my recruitment again back before it was the cool thing to do. Um, and, before they had graphics. Really, <laughs> and so um, for me, uh, I did not receive any kind of offer from Notre Dame, but I'd been in, in touch with Coach Greg Madison, great defensive line coach and defensive coordinator for a long time in, in both college and NFL. And I'll never forget um, – when uh, when I got that envelope with kind of the the gold helmet, kind of the same gilded gold that's on the dome that was on our helmets at the time, um, it was unique to any piece of mail that I'd received from Notre Dame or any others. And when I opened it up and it offered me that that full scholarship, like I went home and I told my dad, I was like, I don't know how I say no to this place. And I didn't. So <laughs> it was it was just I think it was just a matter of days. You know, I, I called Coach Madison. I said, hey, can I get Coach Davies' number? And he was like, uh, sure, he can call you, you know. And I was like, I'd rather just give him a call. I interrupted Coach Davey at dinner at home, and and I told him that uh, that I was coming to Notre Dame no matter what. And uh, lo and behold, you know, a uh, whole recruitment story later um, that I was, I, was, I was coming, even though <laughs> Coach Davey wasn't. So it was, uh, yeah. <laughs> It was it was a it was a dream come true for me. And he said, I'm gonna tell you what, Bob, <laughs> I have the Morton salt in my hand, and this means something. This is a sign. It's a <laughs> <laughs> I found out years later that Coach Madison had been talking to my parents. Uh, and, and like when I was even when I was committed to Texas AM. Oh wow. And my mom was like feeding them information. So whenever I would talk to Coach Madison, he just seemed to have that like divine sense that I was like <laughs> unhappy or that certain things were going on. And I didn't find out till I was like a junior and I was like super ticked when I found out, <laughs> but I forgave him because obviously it, it brought me to the place that I really, I, I've wanted to be since I was just a child. And so people ask me all the time, like, what's it like to come to Notre Dame, be recruited, be offered, walk in the stadium and I always say it's like Neil Armstrong going to the moon, right? Yeah. Story of Neil Armstrong, like all he ever wanted to do was be a pilot. And the reality of his life 
was to go even higher than he ever dreamed he was going to go. Like my dream was to show up to Notre Dame, to go to a game. And the fact that I got to actually, you know, play football in, in that place on that campus with the people that I did so far above anything that I could have dreamed. My last question for you, Bob, is about Sam Hartman. And I'm curious what your expectations are for him. Yeah, man, that's a that's a unique situation, one that I don't know a whole lot about, right? Like I, right. you know, uh, first year guy coming in and playing was, you know, re refreshment. Um, we didn't have transfers um, like Sam coming in to really make that kind of um difference um and and you know be the guy um i would say my expectation for him it's high right i think he's a high iq player takes care of the ball's got some zip on it um the skill set that he has i think fits really really well um into whatever kind of offense we want to run um uh, assuming that we have something that looks somewhat similar schematically to what we've seen over the last couple of years the thing that i think is really interesting is that like I really want to look back five plus years from now and see how like Sam Hartman helped Notre Dame rebuild the trajectory of its quarterback room, right? Like we're going into a spring ball and you, you'll, you'll hear that, yeah, like there's going to be some element of competition and things like that, but you're going into spring ball with a pretty proven entity in Sam Hartman. Right. And so – how do the other quarterbacks handle that? How do quarterback recruits handle that? How does he handle himself with the team, with the media, with the coaches, with those other quarterbacks? Because I see it could be really hard for certain individuals right now in the short term. But one season from now, we could be looking at the quarterback room as a core strength of this team moving forward. And it really, it does, it falls on his shoulders in how he's going to handle the pressure of, not only the moment, but also the relationships that are there for him. Good well, answer, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> we saved the good ones for last for some yeah. reason. I don't know what we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we appreciate you taking time to join us as always, Bob. You're one of our favorite guests, like I said at the top, and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking to you soon. Yeah, well, I look forward to it, guys. And honestly, I look forward to, you know, seeing how these players, you know, come out. Right? They, there's no better way to leave spring than having six or seven offensive linemen fighting for those five positions and, and being in a spot where over the summer, like they're really challenged to be engaged. And so I look forward to what they're going to do. Look forward to what this team's going to be. And ultimately like, let's fast forward to fall, man. Like let's get there. I'm ready to go. All right. Now it's time for questions. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or the inside lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at T James ND and Eric's at E Hanson ND. First one we have is from at Russo 1957 with the loss of Brandon Hillman. Will Notre Dame seek a safety with two years of eligibility? Um, I do think they'll seek a safety through the portal with the new batch. that's going to be entering the portal between May 1st and May 15th. Now, if it's a grad transfer, they, they could obviously do it anytime, but um, I think even more specifically than the two years, I think the sweet spot would be, someone who's good enough to be in the rotation this year to help and good enough next year to compete for a starting spot. Um, you've got Brown and Harper um, who, and Harper's primarily a nickel. He's that 
transfer from Oklahoma State. They're done after this year. Um, then you have Henderson's going to be a true senior. He still has a COVID year. Watts will be a senior, but he has a red shirt and a COVID year. But you don't know if those guys are going to stick around. Um, Walters doesn't even come up in conversation. And then you have the two freshmen. So, I mean, what what Notre Dame really needs is maybe one of the hardest people to get through the portal and through admissions, and that would be somebody that just finished their sophomore year. Uh, but again, you know, I mean, they Alohi Gilman was a guy like that, and they were able to get him through um, admissions and so forth. So we'll see. But that was a, I do think that was insightful by Cheryl that they do need somebody with more than one year. Yeah, I don't know. It seems like a lot. It seems like a very narrow like requirement. Like, okay, you got to like. Yes, I agree that sort of the the circumstance that you describe or the person with the skill set and the uh, variables um, would work best for Notre Dame. But I, I don't. I don't know. I don't know how many of those people exist. Like, I don't. I, I don't know what that's right. Well, look I mean, like. you can't count on. It. I think that's what you aim for, and right. then you may have to settle for somebody that's a little bit more of a project or is a finished product, but has one year. Yeah. I mean, to me, so if you're asking me what's the most likely they take a grad transfer this year, they take a grad transfer next year. That, to me, that seems to be the most likely outcome. Um, and then just keep trying to load up at the safety position in the recruiting yeah. classes, um, which I think I know I had reported previously that they were looking to add two safeties to this class. Now they will more likely take three. And I think, um, if certain things play out in a way that they feel comfortable with, I think they would even go to four um, just because they need that depth at that position um, because there's a pretty big gap there between those guys that are towards the end of their career and the guys that are just getting started at safety for Notre Dame right now. All right. Next question is from at Henry B. How does a recruit become ineligible for admission to Notre Dame in their final semester of high school? Okay, so we're hypothetically speaking now, we're not speaking specifically of any one person. Uh, there are times when they're granted admission conditionally. So they may need to pick up a foreign language requirement. You know, they may need to pick up a certain math class. They may need to maintain a minimum GPA. And if they don't hold up their part of the bargain, then Notre Dame has to reverse course. It doesn't happen very often but it does happen. And you'd say, well, why would somebody not have that foreign language thing already taken care of? Or why not the math class? Because sometimes Notre Dame doesn't start recruiting that player until the very end of the cycle. Mm -hmm. And so then they don't have really much time to prepare and kind of change course. Right. So, um, you know, that that's how it works. Again, it doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. Yeah, if you if you have a checklist of things to accomplish and you don't accomplish them, then <laughs> it seems pretty straightforward that then you would no longer be eligible to to come to Notre Dame. So, um, I think uh, it's not unheard of um, for something like that to happen, and Notre Dame uh, has to be aware of those possibilities and be on the same page with its recruits um, and work towards getting those guys in if there there are concerns with them and sort of the final stretch in their in their recruitment. All right, next question is from Irish Fort 
Irish sports fan on the Insider Lounge looking over the chaotic defensive line board. How many is Andy looking to take this year? And can you give your best guesses at which recruits will fill those slots? Would you like me to take the lead on this one first, Eric? Well, I, I feel, can. I can. Pretty confident on it. Okay, I can throw throw it out there a little bit, and then I think I'll have you finish up the specifics. Okay. So as I looked at it, they have five players with expiring eligibility. The only one of those doesn't have a COVID year, and that's Jean Baptiste. Um, and then you may have some post spring transfer out or two. You may add a grad transfer post-spring in the defensive line. My guess is five. And then I went through the offers, and there's nine defensive tackle offers, 12 strong side defensive ends, and 15 weak side defensive ends. And that's even before Pot of Gold Day, uh, which I think is a lot of 2025 guys, but isn't it some 2024s? It will. It, it could be. I'm not aware of any 2024s that may be okay. added okay. to the list. So there. it's more but 2025. It is uh, also like you're counting the defensive ends, and that's the way, how rivals list them. Some of the guys that Notre Dame is recruiting as a defensive end, like as a Viper, are listed as outside linebackers too. So the number is even higher than yeah. than the number you gave there too. I don't. I didn't go and count, but um, right. No, I went through, and there were names that looked familiar to me, but I'll let you go. Um, pick as the ones that are most probable or I, I guess most coveted, that would probably be a little bit easier. Um, So I think the number ends up between being somewhere between four and six. Um, I, I think if you had to pin me down to one, I'd probably say four, Um, but I can see them getting to five. And if things go well, really well, then you get to six. Um, but I think so that my odds on favorites of being the four would be Owen Wafel, who's already committed to Notre Dame, the Smith twins, Jacob Smith and Jared Smith, and then Bryce Young um, as, as your four defensive lineman. And then your fifth spot, you're pushing for defensive tackle, just Justin Scott, who obviously we're all pretty familiar with and defensive end Elijah rushing, who uh, we reported uh, last night, it will be making an official visit to Notre Dame in June. So those are sort of the guys that, I think those are tough recruitments, the Justin Scott and Elijah rushing recruitments. Um, Notre Dame has reason to be somewhat confident in those. Um, I think maybe more with Scott based on there was a, a pretty good chance that he was going to end up committing to Notre Dame um, until the Georgia offer came around. Um, and then I think Notre Dame's sort of working from behind in the Elijah rushing recruitment. So those would be – so if 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 Notre Dame can get to six, I think those would maybe be the six you're looking at now. Um but I think there certainly could be a number of different guys that could be moved in and out of there. But those first four that I mentioned, Owen Wafel, Jared Smith, Jacob Smith, and Bryce Young are like the the four that I have the most confidence in um, being in Notre Dame's class. Uh, next question is from at Charles W. Wolf. Do pot of gold recruits commit at a higher rate than traditional offers? It seems like a really neat promotion and might carry a bit of prestige, but wasn't sure if there was a measurable impact. Well, I, 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 I would imagine you have the number, so this is going to be my guess. My guess is that you, that it, it's a neat promotion, but they swing for the fences with those guys too. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are pretty usually elite offers. And so I would say those two things cancel each other out. So I would say it's about the same rate as non-pot of gold things. So the 2023 class that signed with Notre Dame, there's actually no one that was offered like in the, their original pot of gold. So like, wow, we talked about, uh, um, 
how this this one on Friday will be mostly 2025 recruits. So last yeah. the one that happened last year was mostly 2024 guys. But one person that did add an offer on Pot of Gold Day as a 2023 recruit was Micah Bell. So he is technically one person who did receive a St. Patrick's Day scholarship offer um, in the class. And then obviously the rest of the guys weren't. So obviously that means <laughs> if you received an offer not on Pot of Gold Day, you, your odds were better. Um, but there were some guys that Notre Dame did have traction with that had received their offers when they were uh, sophomores. Um, and then things didn't work out. And there were going to be names that will make people groan. But it's Peyton Bowen. Keon Keeley and Dante Moore were all guys that received pot of gold yeah. offers once upon a time. Um, and Notre Dame had, did have recruiting success with those guys, but obviously didn't win, win the recruitments in the end with those guys. I think maybe more than one of those guys was expecting actual, actual gold. <laughs> literal gold, <laughs> maybe all three. Like, well, where's the gold? <laughs> um, so obviously the 2024 class isn't done yet, but Notre Dame already does have three commitments in its 2024 class that were pot of gold offers. Um, and that's Jack Larson, Peter Jones, and Owen Wafel. Um, so I did some rough math on that. And actually, Brandon Davis Swain, who was once committed in Notre Dame, was also a pot of gold offer. He's since decommitted. So I did some rough math. I think that we had reported like 69 offers, but some of those were sort of re-offers. So I rounded down to 60 offers. And so three commitments out of 60 offers gives you one out of every 20. And then so the rest of Notre Dame's 2024 class right now is roughly 120 offers. And that the Notre Dame also has five other commitments. So that's one out of every 24. So by my crude math, Notre Dame's actually done better in terms of offering pot of gold uh, guys and those leading to commitments than it's been for the 2024 cycle than, than non guys. And there's still a number of guys that were pot of gold offers that they're in the running for. Anthony Carey's a running back, uh, linebacker Christopher Jones, safety slash linebacker Tylen Singleton, safety Marquise Gallegos. Wide receiver Bradell Richardson, wide receiver Jason Robinson, who I just dropped some news on the entire lounge about. Uh, defensive end Elijah Rushing, linebacker Kingston Viliamu Asa, and wide receiver Jeremiah McClellan. So Notre Dame could end up with a decent amount of pot of gold signees in its 2024 class, given where it stands with guys already committed and some of the guys it's still still chasing. So I, I mean, it is definitely a worthwhile thing. It's it's a it's a day that Notre Dame can sort of brand as its own just because of what it is being St. Patrick's day and being Irish. No one else can really claim that in the same way that Notre Dame can. And it's just a different way to add a little bit of a wrinkle to the recruitment and give them some extra attention, get the attention of the coaching staff. And um, so I think, I think it's a smart thing. And even if it wasn't like turning out huge numbers of commitments, I still think it's, it's worthwhile. Um, as long as, as long as you're not like hurting yourself and not having offered these guys previously, um, and obviously Notre Dame has gone ahead and, and offered other 2025 recruits already and not not waited till till St. Patrick's Day to do that. All right, next question is from Nathan Reynolds at Enforcers2117. Any news on the men's basketball coach? Who are Tyler and Eric's top choices, and who do you actually think will get it? Um, so I, I think we should be close now because teams will get eliminated from the NCAA tournament. And um, then people will be free to make deals and so forth. I mean, you can't be coaching your team and saying, hey, guys, I'm going to be leaving. So go out there and give it your all. And uh, and then I'm going to take the Notre Dame job. So it's really what down to three, unless there's a surprise that comes out of nowhere with Darian DeVries of uh, Drake, Matt Langle of Colgate and Micah Shrewsbury of Penn State. 
of those, I mean, they're all kind of mid forties guys. They all have very different backgrounds. Um, DeVries was a long, long time assistant at Creighton has done really good things since he's been a head coach for five years at Drake. Matt Lengel had a really slow rebuild at Colgate. I mean, they had six straight losing seasons and then they've been really good. Um, and then Micah Shrewsbury, who's has the most varied background of all those guys has only been a head coach for two years, uh, has done really good things at Penn state. Uh, but I like his varied background. He was a head coach here in South Bend before at IU South Bend. He's an Indiana guy, went to cathedral in Indianapolis, Hanover college, uh, down on the river, Ohio river in Indiana, Bill Belinsky's alma mater. And, uh, Micah Shrewsbury would be my choice that I would pick out of those three. Um, and he would also be the man that I think has the best chance to land the job. And he also, most importantly, has worked on both sides of the Monon Bell rivalry. He was both an assistant at Wabash and DePaul, which are two schools that uh, are important to a lot of people, particularly me, um, but maybe less uh, <laughs> Notre Dame fans. Um, but He's uh, also the person whose name sounds like last name sounds like a flavor at Willy Wonka's chocolate. <laughs> yeah, but but I'm in agreement. I think he he's my he's my preferred pick. Um, I also think he seems like perhaps the most likely one. I think there's a chance that Notre Dame gets him. I I, I still the money thing is a little bit like okay, are, is Penn State really going to like throw a bunch of money at him to prevent him from leaving? Can Notre Dame match that? How how because I do think like. Notre Dame isn't isn't the most attractive job right now. It is it is a it is a serious uh um rebuild that's facing the next head coach. Um and they're not building off a lot of success. They're gonna be building from a thin roster. Um and so I think it's I think you, you have to make a competitive offer to get someone to come here. I don't think you can just like say, hey, we're Notre Dame, you want to come here. Um, you, you, we, we can cut some corners here on the on the pay front. I don't think that's going to be the case. All right, next question is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. With Brian Mason's departure to the NFL and other coaches' flirtations with the NFL, do you think this is the start of a trend with co coaches leaving college for the NFL due to the better lifestyle? As the college game has become more of a grind, do you see um, President Charlie Baker and the NCAA having – the foresight to do something to reduce the grind for coaches, such as extend dead periods, et cetera. What other things do you think they could do to make it more palatable for college coaches off the topic of football? Who do you both have in your final four? And I, Charlie Baker is the president. I, I fill that in. So if that's wrong, that's not Marie getting that wrong. That was me getting it wrong. That, Isn't that, you, it, you got that right. That's so, his name, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I want to, as far as Marie's original question about, it, it did seem like there were a lot of college guys going to the NFL this year. And maybe it was because there were so many on Notre Dame staff and, and not everybody took those jobs. I mean, Chancey Stuckey, Al Golden, um, O'Leary, all those guys were getting looks from the NFL there. I mean, maybe Mickens and uh, some of the other guys did too. Uh, but uh it just seemed we don't, like we don't know for sure that all those guys got offers though we do right we do. We're, right but there was there was talks let's put it that way right. there was some interest in that either one way or both ways mm -hmm. um and Dylan McCullough so it, I don't know if you mentioned Dylan McCullough either Dylan McCullough absolutely and and I think there's going to be continued but but some of it 
is, is where do these guys want to end up? I mean, does Dillon want to go back to the NFL and stay there now? You know, one of the reasons he came to Notre Dame was he wanted to eventually become a college head coach and, and first a college coordinator. Well, if you go back to the pros, are you deferring that? Or are you giving up on that? But it, it did make me wonder about what's going on in college that's making those guys attractive. What's going on in college that's making the NFL more attractive to them? Because some guys really like college. And what I came up with was the NIL and the portal thing might be bothersome to some, especially somebody like Al Golden, who just jumped back into it. And I thought he wanted to be a college head coach, and he might just say, well, this NIL stuff is um, more than I really bargained for, and that may nudge him toward thinking about a pro job. So it's something that requires more research on my part to give you a better question. I actually think it's a story idea and something that I had been bouncing around in my mind. So maybe you could help me on that story idea, Marie. Um, I probably needed help on my final four because <laughs> my final four ended up being Yukon, Texas, Arizona, and Marquette with Marquette winning it all. Well, we have at least one of the same. I have Arizona, Duke, Houston, and UCLA with Houston winning it all. So a lot of variance there between the two of us. Um, in terms of the coaching trend, I'd be curious to see like what sort of numbers there are in terms of what going if there I mean, I don't know who who has tracked that. I imagine maybe someone, maybe some sort of coaching association, the the AFCA has, has tracked something like that. That's what um, I was trying to think about. Uh because it does seem more common. Although, I mean, I think there was always this existing like thought that, hey, if you don't like recruiting, like you're not going to stick in college football very long. You're going to want to try to get your way to the NFL if that's something that um, isn't your passion. Um, then and, you're not. And yet, Charlie once, Charlie Weiss once told me he worked much. He worked fewer hours in college by a lot than he did when he was with the Patriots. And maybe that's why you didn't have as much success at Notre Dame. Well, <laughs> sorry, I'm speaking recruiter. Sorry, um, I'm, spe I'm speaking for Notre Dame fans there, not yeah. as much for myself. But <laughs> um, I, the thought of like making the dead periods longer, I'm not sure how much that would help because regardless of whatever the rules of recruiting are, the stakes of recruiting will remain the same. Like you need to go out and get your guys, and so you're going to find a way to do that regardless of what the rules are. So even if it's a dead period, you can still call the kid all day and night and, and talk to him all the time. Um, and so uh, you're not exactly going to be, I mean, maybe you feel like you can do that while on vacation too, but, but I don't know that you're going to be unplugging more. I mean, it, it would lessen the travel, I think is the one thing that I think that, and that probably depends on what school you're at in terms of the travel conditions that you're work, working under. It may be a lot worse or someone that's doing a lot of driving or doing a lot of connecting flights and stuff like that, where maybe if you're in a better position and you got either a private plane or you got different opportunities and it's more direct flights that, that aren't as taxing on you. Um, I think the NIL regulation would, would be a, a big thing in terms of making that. It, like it's not only <laughs> you've added a thing to, to the recruiting process that is like out of the coach's control at this point. I mean, they can sort of have some like backroom discussions and stuff like that, but it's sort of like added an extra variable in there, which always sort of existed um, to varying degrees. But now like it's totally, it's like unregulated and 
the coaches can't really ha- legally have much involvement in it um, in terms of the NCAA rules. Um, so I think college football is in a, in a state where it's going to have to rely heavily on coaches that really want to impact the lives of young men more than be great football coaches. I know that's like a cliche that I think some people might sort of scoff at, but I think that is like a true thing. Like if you, if you want to be a football coach and um, you have to make the choice between college and the NFL uh, to me, that's the only like sizable benefit to being a college coach. Now, maybe there's like, you feel like, if you like have a family, it's easier to bring it, raise a family in like a college town than it would be if you're like coaching in the pros or something like that. So maybe there are some other layers to that, um, that some coaches could speak to in terms of what's the difference between why they would stay in the college versus being in the pros. Um, because I, I, I don't know that either is like less cutthroat anymore. Like you, you're not, you're not guaranteed to stay in a college football position much more than two or three years if it's not going well. Um, and it might be even, a little bit harsher at the NFL level, but um, I don't know that there's a lot of job security at either level right now. All right. Our last question is from Bert Leonard at Bert 2834. I'm sure this is super simplistic. Why doesn't every offensive coordinator slash play have a wide receiver going in motion from one side of the line to the other to determine man versus zone coverage? If the best cornerback is left on the side with no wide receivers, isn't that a huge advantage? Um. So it's not something I've thought a lot about. I I know that there's a lot of things that you can do with motion. I knew that that was one of the things I try to research why you wouldn't do that. Um, And and sometimes you can tell how defenses are aligned without doing the motion. Um, Sometimes you can tell one coach was talking about how if they go from a full sprint, if the corners go from a full sprint to their spot, it's man. If they, kind of sidestep to their spotted zone um but one reason not to do it um some coaches feel like there's so much you have to get done pre-snap including sliding coverages and so forth if you can recognize it without having to put somebody in motion uh you can get more done it in the pre-snap so forth but um it seems like certainly the easiest way to identify a zone for man yeah, I think I, I think it makes sense, and I would generally be in favor of doing it with some frequency. I don't know that I'd do it every play. Um, because defenses would eventually counter and work to disguise their coverages better. If they know that you're going to motion on every play, they're not going to want to give away what they're doing on every play. Um, and defenses could do different things. You, you could play man to one side and play zone to another. Um, from an offensive standpoint, I think you have to be efficient. Like when you add motion to the play, you're adding just more variables. You have to be efficient with your motions. If you if you take the time to motion, you're going to have less time to maybe change the play. Maybe you find something out because of that motion, but you can't actually audible the play because you don't have enough time for that the, everything to sort of settle down. Um, and then if if you take the time to do that, then why doesn't the defense also then the defense can figure out and adjust too? So, I think uh, another wrinkle would be like the more you motion, the more you risk either their illegal motions or illegal formations. Um, so you'd have to be very uh, disciplined in, in your motions there. So a, a lot of, a lot of teams do a lot of motion. Uh, uh, Tommy Reese was, was pretty big on, on doing motions and, and helping out his quarterback by doing that. But I think there are, it's not, it's not a hundred percent like uh, all benefit. I think there can be some, some downsides to it. Um, and uh 
I think sometimes you 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 want to have multiple receivers to one side because of the route combinations make them better than just having one guy to a side um and and things like that. All right, that's it for today's episode of the Inside ND Sports Podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other popular podcast platforms. If you like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review, and share our podcast feed with your favorite college professor. We want to get to 100 ratings on Apple Podcasts in 2023, and we might be able to get there before spring break starts with one last push here. We're up to 95 ratings and received this review from Cottage Viper since our last podcast. Cottage Viper says, top-notch, best interviews, and also the best at actually answering questions that they request from listeners. This is appreciated a lot. Nice mix of humor and facts, able to parry the win-or-die fanatic mentality of certain percentage of the fan base. All in all, playing their podcast is like putting on a nice warm pair of socks on a cold day. So thank you, Cottage Viper, for that kind review. Um, I, I especially appreciate the fact that he thinks we, or he or she thinks we answer questions that are asked because I think sometimes we say, wait a minute, we don't agree with the premise of this question, but, uh, I still think we at least try to address, address the question as, as they're presented to us. So, um, we, I mean, it's a major part of our podcast. It has been from the start and, and we'll com- continue to be moving forward. Uh, we will get back into a weekly podcast rhythm with spring football starting next week. We'll, Probably still be bouncing around on different days of the week based on the media schedule, but um, you will be hearing from us more frequently. We're still rolling on YouTube with the Football Never Sleeps show on a weekly basis, and we'll have some spring practice content coming that way too, so make sure you subscribe to us over there as well. And until next week, stick with InsideIndieSports.com for all your Notre Dame coverage needs. (laughs) 